Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, brief housekeeping. Once again, I'm now adding afterwards at the end of these podcasts, so I will save some of my remarks for there. Again, I'd like to urge supporters of the podcast to visit my website and go to the subscriber content page and download the subscriber feed of the podcast. If you are seeing a black Making Sense icon in your podcasting app, you do not have the subscriber feed. You have the public one, and you will be missing some content. And there'll be more of that kind of thing happening very soon, so you have been warned. And as always, thank you for your support. Also, many of you have asked whether the conversations that I'm now having on the Waking Up app can be made available to podcast subscribers. The answer is yes, although we've decided to put them on my website only, not pipe them to the subscriber feed. This is because they really are narrowly focused on the topic of living an examined life, meditation, the nature of consciousness, and many of these conversations are just too specific for the podcast generally. So I I just don't want to hit the average podcast listener who is supporting the podcast with these episodes in his or her feed. So if you want to hear them, they will be on the website and you can listen in your browser and they will soon be posted in the subscriber content section. And of course, if you really want to get into these topics with me and you want to hear everything I have to say there, there really is no substitute for subscribing to the Waking Up app. There's a reason why it's a separate app. And as always, if you actually can't afford a subscription, you need only send an email to support at wakingup.com and you'll be given a free account. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Morantz. Andrew is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His work has also appeared in Harper's, New York Magazine, Mother Jones, The New York Times, and many other publications. He is a contributor to Radio Lab and the New Yorker Radio Hour. He has spoken at TED, and he's been interviewed in many places, CNN, MSNBC, NPR. And we are talking today about his book, Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And it's an interesting book and an interesting discussion. It gets more contentious than I was expecting about an hour in or so. Andrew is more woke than I realized, and we talk about all that. I can't tell if we disagree more than is apparent in this conversation or less. I'm going to guess more. Again, I was a little surprised at the line he took through parts of this conversation. This is becoming an occupational hazard. Anyway, I'll have a few more things to say about that in my afterward. And now I bring you Andrew Morantz. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've written a, a fascinating book, which is a really fun read. Uh, the book is Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Before we jump into your book, give me a, a potted bio for you. How do you describe your career as a journalist? Uh, it's a good question. Well, first, uh, 
I think some people might have a hard time believing that it's a fun read, but I appreciate you saying it because although it is dark subject matter, I did try to find some of the the dark comedy in it. And yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, no, I'm glad that landed because, you know, you c- it can't just be bleakness from start to finish, even though it does get bleak sometimes. I guess I would say I graduated from college in 2006, uh, moved to Brooklyn and became a freelance journalist because that's what all my friends were doing, basically. And, you know, for other reasons, too, I wanted to learn about stuff and pursue truth without sort of boxing myself into one academic discipline exclusively for the rest of my life and wanted to try to write beautiful sentences that also spoke to true things in the world and, you know, all the sort of cliche reasons one becomes a sad young literary man in Brooklyn and um, ended up freelancing for, you know, Harper's New York Magazine, Mother Jones, a variety of places and did a master's program where I met someone who was leaving an editorial position at The New Yorker and told me that one was opening up and it was a kind of entry level bottom of the food chain sort of job there. But I just was so impressed with everyone I met there that even though I wasn't sure I wanted an editorial entry-level job and I was in some ways just happier being a writer, I uh, I took that job and then I sort of was an editor and a writer for six or seven years before going back full-time into writing mostly for The New Yorker and for this book. It's interesting. So your your, your book is, is fascinating because essentially you embedded yourself among the deplorables and you know, so it's, it's really a, a report from the front. When did you actually start reporting for the book? Uh, there's kind of different ways of answering that. I mean, in one sense, the idea for the book really gelled once Trump entered the picture, you know, on that, mm. on that escalator that we all remember from June 2015. In another way, the preoccupations of the book predated that. You know, I was reporting on clickbait factories and the kind of degradation of online media since 2014. And so it, it, it was kind of, it was a set of preoccupations I had already had. And then once Trump and Trumpism entered the picture, and then from there, you know, various kinds of trollery and misogyny and white nationalism and stuff, it all kind of congealed into something that I felt really had to be a book. But the, the mm. underlying concerns, I think, had, had been with me for a while. They were just kind of inchoate and hard for me to even really put a name to. So before we, we actually begin to walk through your adventure in the book and and touch specific topics like social media and fake news and gatekeeping and Trump and how the press deals with him. And there's there's a lot to cover here. But what's interesting to me is that many of us have been isolated in a kind of liberal, scare quotes, elitist bubble. And this book is really a kind of breaking of that spell is what it's like to fully embed in this culture of reaction in their own terms to elitism. And your book offers some considerable testimony to to what has been happening. But I do have a concern that as we analyze this, we are very likely to be importing our the continued liberal confusion into that context and misunderstanding things. And, and so what I feel like, well, this, is, this is now a concern that I've expressed on multiple podcasts, I feel like there's a, the prospect of 
either exaggerating the problem of things like white nationalism, for instance, uh, and sparking a kind of pendulum swing into moral panic. I mean, I certainly see that on the left. I see that especially clearly because there are people on the left who think I'm a white nationalist, which is completely insane. So as we walk through this at various points, I'm going to want to question whether or not the, the way you see the, the data you, you were confronting, the data being these, these conversations with people, is the only interpretation to which it's susceptible. So with, with that caveat, let's just wade in and... Well, just to, just to add on what you're it, yeah. saying before we get going, sure. I think that's all yeah. stuff I'd, I'd be interested in exploring in the conversation. I guess one thing about being blindsided and being in a, in a you know, elitist bubble and all that stuff, it's sort of fully yes and, and also no. I mean, on the one hand, I do find it sort of inexplicable that Trump could have any base at all in this country on a kind of like a priori level. On another level, I, you know, was the guy sort of betting my friends that he would win because I had that read of the political landscape, even though I was sort of, you know, incredulous about it. I still did think it would happen. And there was kind of a lull in, you know, October 2016 when I sort of finally accepted, okay, I guess all the polls can't be wrong. But up until then, I did sort of have a sense that it was not only possible, but in many, at many points, probable. So I definitely own the, uh, you know, latte sipping, glasses wearing Brooklynite label that I very clearly <laughs> wear. But I also, you know, I think there, there are bubbles and there are bubbles. And yeah, I think it's possible to see out of them. And in some cases, all you have to do to see out of them is just, you know, do a Google search or a Facebook search and, and there it is. So I definitely, everybody has their biases and I have mine, but um, I do think that the sort of liberal elites who can't even believe that Trump, you know, misspelled a word on Twitter kind of, you know, caricatured, you know, we get carried away with that sometimes, I think. Yeah, I actually had forgotten that part of your book where you, you detail your prescience with respect to Trump. So I, I was more in the bubble than you were, except I was struck by the detail you flagged that the New Yorker had not prepared a cover for a Trump victory. They only had a Clinton cover, which was yeah fairly amazing. Yeah, and there is a degree to which, and we can get into this too, but there's another kind of bifurcation here with, re- with regard to the New Yorker, because in a sense, the New Yorker is kind of a minor character in the book, and there's a way of reading what I do as a kind of, you know, parody of the New Yorker's, you know, insistence on putting accents on, you know, the word elite or, you know, the diarysis or whatever. And like that stuff is fun to mock and I'm happy to mock it lightly. On the other hand, there is this sort of strange, almost reversal that I experienced where my natural tendency is to be pretty anti-authoritarian and contrarian and anti-establishment in many ways. That's kind of my natural instinctive tendency. And yet I find myself kind of coming to this from within the kind of inner sanctum of elite American journalism. And I guess there's a lot to say about it. We can explore many angles of it, but I guess there are just different kinds of elitism and many of them, most of them are obviously bad. And I think that from my experience of The New Yorker, from being inside it, it actually doesn't subscribe to that bad kind of elitism nearly as much as I would have expected. I mean, I expected a lot of snooty, 
elbow patch wearing, you know, all the stuff you see on the family guy or something. I didn't, that, that hasn't been my experience. It has, however, been my experience that there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of discriminations being made, you know, with regard to which piece is better than another piece or how a piece should be structured or which arguments withstand scrutiny. And so it is um, hierarchical in that sense. You know, it is a gatekeeping institution in the sense that it takes great care to decide which things to publish and which things, you know, not to. But so, I mean, that's just to sort of mark that as to the extent that that is um, hierarchical, you know, there are different ways of being hierarchical, some more arbitrary than others. Yeah, well, I once wrote an article titled In Defense of Elitism for Newsweek, and, and then John Meacham helpfully retitled it When Atheists Attack. Uh, <laughs> I still so, think yours so, uh, is more clickable, but uh, yeah, sure. maybe more meretricious. Right. Yeah, I was, I was going after Sarah Palin mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. So um, let's start with social media. I mean, you, you make the, so I think many of us feel that social media is somewhere close to the root of the problem. You know that coupled to the the advertising model for digital media and the and the primacy of clicks, you point out in a recent New Yorker article. I don't think you make this point in your book, but that you know the Gutenberg Revolution unleashed similar problems, right? I mean, the, the, you know, the printing press had had liabilities in that it, it allowed for the amplification of misinformation, and Martin Luther is often celebrated as a sign that you know the printing press enabled the Reformation, but as you point out, it also allowed him to spread his murderous anti-Semitism and ushered in something like a century of religious conflict. But it seems that there is something special about the time in which we're living, and this notion upon which Facebook and these other companies are founded, that linking people digitally is just an intrinsic good, that hasn't really survived contact with reality these few years. Yeah, it it unfortunately survived, I think, a few years beyond where it was plausible. And that extension of a few years was enough to, in part, give us Trump and Brexit and Bolsonaro and Modi and, you know, Duterte. I mean, I could go on. But mm. but yeah, I think you're right. It's it's the worm has kind of turned on that one. I think, you know, in the space of, you know, just the few years between when I started embarking on this project and when I'm putting it out into the world, I've been shocked at how much public opinion has swung from, in my view, one sort of extreme to the other. And I think that's helpful. I don't think that it's, I don't think we're all the way there yet in terms of nuance and understanding, you know, obviously there's a lot of helpful stuff bundled together with a lot of really dangerous stuff. And I don't think on a large scale, we've really teased it all out yet. I guess to your to your point about whether it's different, I think, yes, it's different in the sense that, well, two things. One, I think because we relied on a really unrealistically oversimplified idea of what liberatory technologies do, because a lot of the, because a lot of the, you know, young men who started these social media companies were just sort of assuming that their technologies would be like the printing press and that the printing press essentially did nothing but help us move toward progress and democracy and all the rest of it. They had an opportunity, if they had had a more nuanced view of it, to build in protections right from the beginning, and they 
didn't do that. And so they set themselves up for more pain than was necessary. I also think that even though the early publishers and printers in, you know, Renaissance Europe were ambivalent about their status as gatekeepers, they did come to accept pretty quickly that they had that role and responsibility. And the social media founders worked really hard to deny that they were gatekeepers, to deny that they had any curatorial responsibility, to deny that they could be held accountable for what happened on their platforms. In some cases, they're still trying to deny it, again, without mm. without any plausibility in my view. So yeah, I think it's the combination of these massively powerful tools with all kinds of denials of the idea that the tools could have any negative impact and that if they do have any negative impact, well, we're just not responsible for it. Um, I think that is unique. Plus, you know, now we have nukes and climate crisis and, you know, just things that they didn't have to deal with back then. Do you think the gatekeeping problem is soluble? I think it can be improved. I don't have a perfect solution in mind, but I think one key thing is for the engine of virality to be moved away from what it currently is, which is what I call activating emotion, or I don't call it that. The scientists that I cite call it that. Mm. I think that's one big thing you could do where instead of the current system, which measures engagement and engagement is measured by proxies for, you know, essentially things that increase your <laughs> galvanic skin response, you know, anger, lust, laughter, you know, just these very kind of animalistic behavioral responses. If you moved away from that as the coin of the realm and moved into a, a more, you know, balanced system where those emotional reactions were mixed with other kinds of reactions, you know, more slow brain kinds of reactions, more pro-social reactions to use the mirror image of the book's title, that would solve a lot. The problem is it's really hard and it might make the companies a little bit less money. Yeah, well, I mean, there is just this problem which you cite in the book that fake news consistently spreads faster than the truth. And it is because we're, we've optimized for these, these activating emotions. We've created a, essentially a quasi-Darwinian system that selects for outrage and misinformation. It's, it's a machine for generating controversy. And you could see how you might tinker with the settings there, but it may just be a fact of human nature that the lurid, incredible, terrifying, and divisive is stickier than something that tells us that people are mostly good most of the time uh, and that you know order is progressing. Yeah, I, I would agree that the lurid and the, you know, that those things are, are stickier inherently. I guess my hope would be that you could build a system that doesn't just privilege those things. I mean, we tend to assume that what we see on social media is just kind of a, a flat reflection of the popular will or that, you know, because we're seeing a lot of something, that means that, you know, a lot of people want that thing to be out there and you know, that it's just sort of a flat reflection of democratic urges and desires. I guess on one kind of immediate level, that's true, because there are people or bots in many cases, you know, clicking on the things. But in another sense, it is, you know, there's a system that is conditioning people to behave a certain way. So, you know, it may have always been the case that lurid and 
false and, you know, sensationalist things got more attention. But, you know, if you were a producer of a newspaper, let's say, yeah, there was plenty of yellow journalism. There were plenty of penny papers and partisan presses and all the rest of it. But they also had a sense of shame. They also were, you know, members of a society that could be made to feel that they should stop, you know, goading society into war because their buddies would look down on them if they did it. Or that, you know, they would do it for the beginning of part of their career and then try to look much more high-minded for the latter part of their career, like Joseph Pulitzer did. So I guess, you know, I do think that human urges can be pushed back against when you have people in charge of the systems who are willing to try. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm sympathetic with this distinction that every social media overlord wants to draw between a publisher and a platform. And, uh, you know, they consider themselves the latter and, and therefore have more or less um, kind of happily abrogated any curatorial responsibility that you or I would want to assign to them. And I, I do understand that just because of the sheer scale of the problem. And but for the fact that we might invent some AI that is truly competent, you know, and doesn't make egregious errors, you know, just censoring, you know, normal Republican senators as, you know, neo-Nazis or whatever the, the failure would be. There's a difference between, you know, you, you, the New Yorker making a decision about who to publish and what sort of views to amplify or me making a decision about who to speak with on this podcast. I think those kinds of decisions have to be made responsibly. And I, and I, I take it seriously, the, the, the concern about whether it makes sense to give someone a platform or not. You know, and, and there are many people I've, you know, there are people you, you spoke with in your book who've asked to be on the podcast and who I've decided essentially never to speak with, because I think they are at least beyond my Overton window. And even there, I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted because part of me, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat idealistic about the prospects of just shining sunlight on bad ideas. And insofar as I think I'm capable of doing that, it's tempting to do it with any bad ideas of consequence. But um, I don't know, when you, when you talk to someone like uh, you know, Jack Dorsey or anyone who's running a platform of this kind, it's hard to see how they can ever curate this correctly, you know, in a way that doesn't cause more problems than it's solving. Because there's just so many casualties of their inept efforts to curate. I mean, there are people who have received lifetime bans from Twitter for saying things like men are not women. In that case, that was considered hate speech against the trans community. I mean, so say more about what your sense of optimism that we should even move in that direction. But what if the technology on some level just doesn't allow for this to be done in a way that is going to solve this particular problem? Yeah, there's a lot in there. And I, I so I've, I'm rarely accused of being an optimist. So I, I appreciate that. I don't think I'm very optimistic about their ability to do it, certainly not their ability to do it flawlessly. You know, we can get into specific cases. I think, you know, my instincts on the trans stuff might be different than yours, but just, you know, we can take any number of examples, but I do take the larger point that there's problems of scale. It's never going to be perfect. And that in some cases, the, the medicine could be worse than the disease when it comes to banning people or, or kicking them off. I mean, I get that in principle. And I am, I am definitely sympathetic to how hard it is for someone who's in charge of one of these platforms to make these very tough decisions. I don't think I have all the answers or that if I were in charge, I would know exactly what to do. I guess 
we kind of have a different starting point though, where, where it seems like you might be starting from the, you know, the system as it exists and then saying, well, how can we expect them to know exactly who to ban when? And I guess I would start a few steps back in the causal chain and, and question how the system was built in the first place. I think by the time you get to the point of deciding who to ban or who not to ban, it's, it's in a sense too late and you're dealing with symptoms instead of root causes. I mean, just because you brought up the example of Jack Dorsey, he's been going around for the last six months or so saying, well, I think it might help if we you know, got rid of follower counts. I think it might help if we didn't incentivize likes and follows and, and shares as much as we incentivized other things. He hasn't done any of that. I'm not sure why he hasn't done it if he thinks mm-hmm. it would help. But I mean, I think I do know why, because it would make the company less profitable and its, its profitability is a big question mark right now. But but that's just one example of how there are structural changes that can be made that are way above the level of do we ban this account or not? And I think what that gets to is the notion that these things were not built with this stuff in mind. You know, Facebook right. is right now working on abdicating some of this responsibility, but they're doing it by building a so-called Supreme Court of Facebook. That is not a body. <laughs> that is not an idea they would have entertained even three years ago. So there, there are different ways of getting around this problem. It's not just to curate or not to curate. Yeah, it's interesting to consider what would happen if we could curate perfectly. Let's say it's an error-free, you know, Nazi detector. But then you still have the question of when these platforms become more or less identical to internet infrastructure, which you could argue that some of them already are, you know, so that you could draw an analogy to something like the phone company, right? So let's say that the phone company could perfectly detect when people were spreading, you know, Nazi ideas in their private phone conversations. Should the phone company just shut down those accounts? That's sort of the territory we're in, if we actually could do this well. Just to address the point you just made, I mean, I guess the analogy... I would use is that the phone company would be more analogous to, you know, CrowdStrike or or not CrowdStrike. That's the thing in the Ukraine complaint. What's it called? Cloudflare. Cloudflare. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. that there would be deeper layers of internet architecture. To analogize the phone company to Twitter would be to imagine that the phone gives you extra points every time you say something, you know, really exciting or you know something that really riles people up. That you know when you're on a conference call, if you call someone a douchebag or something, you know, you get 15 extra points like you're in a video game. If the phone were tilting the playing field in that way, then the phone, yeah, I think would have more of a gatekeeper analogous responsibility because the phone would be affecting our behavior in a, in a proactive way. Okay, well, let's jump into the book properly. So you, so you really go behind the scenes with a fairly motley cast of characters, none of whom... I've met in person, I think, but some of whom I've had various skirmishes with online. But there is this larger issue, which you know we, we should touch on, which is just this guilt by association algorithm that is running on the left. I mean, this really is a problem of, of the left, where if you talk to someone, you know, who's ever spoken to someone who has spoken to someone who's a Nazi, you're a Nazi, right? No one can survive that scheme. You have spoken to someone who's spoken to someone who's spoken to someone who's a Nazi. And well, I, I've spoken to all of them, so yeah. But you, I mean, you you have spoken with them. You could argue to 
however amicably you're you're actually unhorsing them and their worldview or to to some degree doing that this is not no one is going to argue reading your book that you gave these people platforms in or at least i wouldn't expect that would be a common charge i would hope not yeah i think that's right i i set out to see them through a critical lens from the beginning and there is a confusion that i think a lot of journalists have and a lot of the public has about journalism and it's a it's a good faith confusion it's not easily resolved between being unbiased or objective or any of those words and being someone who you know takes in the evidence of your senses and more and more those things seem to be at odds so there's a way of that i could have approached this project where i could have said well i'm just going to quote what they say and i'm just going to kind of you know transcribe it and be a stenographer to power and that's that or i could have done what i did do which was be really critical and in some cases really acerbic and mocking which i think was deserved and in some cases necessary but you can't really do both i mean you can't always be both even-handed and tell the full truth there's a difference there between me using the material i've gathered to tell the story i want to tell and you know handing the microphone to someone to tell the story they want to tell i think that's a meaningful distinction does having hung out with these people in person noticeably corrupt your objectivity with respect to how you portray their ideas or I mean do you think you're you're less combative in your treatment of the, of them and their ideas for having you know broken bread with them and and shared long car rides and all the rest yeah it's a good question i i can't know for sure I've only run that experiment once. I don't have a control group. But I think you probably do have a control group in that there are other people you cover who you presumably don't meet face-to-face even, Mm. and you know what that's like, right? That's a good point, yeah. I mean, one thing I do try to do, it's not just a sort of straight-ahead taxonomy of shitty people on the internet. You know, I do try, it's sort of using them as fodder to tell a larger story. But I do try to take care to taxonomized to the extent that, you know, I don't want to run together differences and conflate differences. You know, some of them are Nazis, some of them are not. Some of them are white nationalists, some of them are not. Some of them, you know, are just kind of diehard Trumpists who I find absurd because they hold that opinion, but I actually am fine with talking to in all other respects. And some of them I just find kind of skin crawly and creepy all the way through. So it is case by case. Now, the question of whether, you know, the case-by-case accounting is different for cases where I've hung out with people versus not, I think it's hard to say. I mean, the kind of journalism I do mostly requires just really being a fly on the wall for long periods of time. And there are some people who do that kind of longitudinal, immersive style journalism who just don't do it about people they don't think they're going to like. I mean, I have colleagues and friends who Mm -hmm. say, I don't want to write a profile of someone unless I I'm reasonably sure that I'm going to enjoy their company because I don't want to spend my time in a combative environment. And I also just don't want to take on the responsibility of writing a really sharp, critical piece in the end. And I just would rather write an admiring piece. Now, obviously, I'm not one of those journalists, but I, I was always on guard against the possibility that they were playing me or that they were using their time with me to try to subtly lobby me toward a more flattering picture of them. In some cases, I think there was no danger of that, such as the cases of, you know, me, a Jewish journalist talking to 
a professional anti-Semite, there was very little chance that I was going to see eye to eye with that person. And yeah, in the end, even in cases where there wasn't that direct of a conflict, I don't think that I was hoodwinked by any of them. And, and at the same time, I don't think I overreacted to that or overcompensated by trying to go harder on them than was merited. But I mean, it's really not for me to decide. Mm. Yeah, there is an interesting effect of you know, compassion creeping in for better or worse, where, I mean, just as the reader, I mean, you, uh, you know, the, one of the more odious characters you talk about is uh, this guy, Mike Enoch, who I, I knew nothing about. That's his pseudonym. What, what's his real name again? Uh, Painovich. Painovich, Mike Painovich. But when you get the details of his childhood and his life, it's, it's pretty easy to see that there's a, a psychological explanation for at least you know some of his obsession with these ideas and and you know the, the misuse of his own mind i mean he's he's a smart guy who's spending all his time being an anti-semite yet married to a jewish woman or i guess no longer married to a jewish woman once once she discovered the nature of his podcast but i mean the, the whole thing is so depressing you know that it's it's hard not to just see him as a casualty of something i mean it's like his 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 own agency kind kind of erodes and you just see you know but for the fact that he wasn't you know fed a, an endless supply of prednisone because he had such horrible eczema as a child things might have been different and um it's those kind of details which if you're just dealing with the ideas you know if, i just find if i'm just reacting to someone because they're putting out terrible memes that's one level where I can ju just deal with the ideas and I can be as uncompromising as I can be. But then if you hung out with someone and gotten a sense of their humanity and all of the exculpatory or potentially exculpatory influences on them, you come away sort of not knowing how harshly to judge them as a person. I, I, I felt the same thing with Cernovich, frankly. I mean, I've never met Cernovich. He's attacked me a bunch online and I you know, responded in kind a little bit, but then I just sort of got more of a sense of, you know, how complicated it was it was to be Mike Cernovich, and I just couldn't keep it up anymore. You know, it just seemed like, all right, this is just it's not worth interacting in a hostile way with this person at all. And yeah, so I just don't know if you if you felt that in your reporting or not, because as a reader, I, I felt it. You know, meeting some of these guys, it just felt like. It's uh, you know I wouldn't want to trade places with any of these people, so um, how harshly am, am I going to judge them? I think you're right that spending a lot of time with these people, both as a reporter and for you as a reader, it does change and deepen the way you see them, and that was part of my goal. I think it's tricky because you don't want to let people off the hook for their terrible behavior. And there's a really fine line between empathy and excuse or, you know, you use the word compassion. I, I don't know how many layers deep we want to go. It's kind of deep in my ethos that I try to have radical compassion for everyone. I try to have compassion for Donald Trump, who's obviously suffering from one or more personality disorders and who... It would be easier to have compassion for him if you felt that he was actually suffering. Right. But <laughs> That's uh, true. He, he, That's true. I, you're using suffering in a, in a different sense because, I mean, we're suffering from his 
his neurological disorders, but he doesn't appear to be suffering from them. You know, I think in the first few minutes before he can actually get the TV to turn on in the morning, I think he probably experiences immense suffering. Right. But I, you know, obviously don't know. And in a sense, it doesn't matter, right? Because what I really try to do, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, able to do this always. I'm not some Christ-like saint or anything, but I do think on some deep level, the goal is to try to have empathy for everyone, even the worst people. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that you excuse what they're doing. And I, every fiber of my being thinks Donald Trump is a bad dude. It's just like, what do we really mean by bad? We mean that he behaves badly. He's bad for the world. He's bad at his job. You know, you can go down the list, but does it mean that he is condemned on every level that he, you know, is a soulless creature who's not a human being. You know, I mean, if you really, really want to get down to the core of it, a part of it has to do with, you know, you, you mentioned the concept of things might have been different in these people's lives. And one of the deep sort of concepts that I'm wrestling with in the book is this concept of contingency and how history might have been different and people's lives might have been different. And that, yeah, there is this kind of deep existentialist effect of a kind of, you know, giant pachinko machine that we're all in. But I think the key, and I didn't expect to be talking about this kind of stuff, but I think it does get to that deep level pretty quickly, because I think the key is to try to hold at once the sort of existentialist, absurdist notion that nothing is predetermined and that we're not on a automatic track toward progress and redemption, while also not, you know, becoming nihilistic and feeling that life has no meaning. And so part of how that for me applies in this case is to think that on some level, of course, people need to be held accountable for their actions. And of course, there's a massive moral difference between being a professional anti-Semite and being a professional nurse or <laughs> bus driver or, you know, I mean, like there are differences in how we act in the world and they're immensely meaningful. But I, I really struggle with saying that 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 the deepest and most complete explanation we can give for someone who does bad things is that they're a human dumpster fire and that's the only thing we have to say about them. I actually think it's more incumbent on us, again, not to excuse, not to look away, but to actually understand the complexity of it. And, and, and in no way to say, oh, if you grew up poor or if you had eczema, therefore you can do whatever you want. Absolutely not. Or that we have to agree with, you know, we have to go from 100% condemnation of their behavior to 90%. It's not that at all. It's just that on some deeper level, you know, my my wife has been a public defender in the past and their sort of ethos is you're not the worst mistake you ever made and it's really really hard to apply that to Nazis. I trust me, it's not instinctive. It's not mm -hmm. intuitive. And again, I don't claim to be some Gandhian figure who just naturally intuitively does that. I mean, Nazis make me upset. They make me angry. I, I get why people want to yell at them. I get why people even want to punch them. And I, I don't claim to be above that. I just think it, it's not the only place to land. And I also think it doesn't help us understand anything. I mean, it, there are different projects, right? There's one project that is about fighting the ideas, which is valuable. And there's another project that's about diagnosing and understanding where they come from. I, I think they're both necessary. Mm. Well, there really is a problem of understanding what's going on because in addition to having Nazis out there and, and you know, extremists of various types, we have this other problem, this layer that is 
built, you know, around it, on it, you know, some, somehow interacting with it of what we might call troll culture. And there's just this new style of insincerity or apparent insincerity or, you know, irony usurping every other value, which creates a problem of assessing what people actually believe and intend. Or, you know, even if you do grant that people should be taken literally, even in these contexts, it's hard to know just how committed they are to these specific ideas. There's a culture of just deliberate obfuscation around this where, you know, as you report, there, you know, some of these people are, you know, I think this was, I forget which website this was, but, you know, it was explicit that they wanted it to be hard for the normies to tell whether or not they're joking, right? Right. And contained in that is the implication that, you know, most of the time we're not really joking, right? Or, you know, we're not joking about some of the worst stuff. How do you think about troll culture and what should be the appropriate response to it? Because the response I'm seeing more and more in the mainstream media and on the left is just taking the worst possible construal of everything as the literal truth of everything. Yeah. And I, I get where that impulse comes from. And, you know, Look, it's really, really complicated. I mean, I say a couple times in the book that trolls set this ingenious trap, right? Because if you're a good troll, and, you know, I think the president is good at very few things, but I think trolling is definitely one of them. If you're good at it, you don't leave people any good choice, right? If you pay any kind of attention to a troll, you're letting them win because what they want is attention. If you let their views or putative views or offensive jokes or ironic whatever go unchallenged then they also win so it's a kind of trap and i don't think we've figured out a good way out i think you know i have a a, a little part of the book where i'm i'm at the white house briefing room and um i'm there with uh this kind of you know just just he's he's a, essentially a, an insurgent in a in a dirty culture war who is acting as a White House correspondent for the Gateway yep. Pundit. So I'm there kind of shadowing him and sort of seeing how, how far he can go in the... He's essentially just performing. He doesn't actually ask questions or intend to ask questions. He's just there to kind of act out the degradation of the norm of the press briefing room being meaningful at all. And right. while he's there... But nonetheless... He and, and others in this vein were just adorably excited to have been granted press credentials in the first place. Absolutely. You know, so they're, they're subverting it as the, the norm of this institution. It's like, this is just a worthless goof. And yet this is the biggest day in my life that I get access to the White House. Totally. I mean, yeah, you see that all over the place. You see that with all kinds of reactionaries and proto-reactionaries and wannabe authoritarians that, you know, our whole system is meaningless and, you know, should be consigned to the waste bin of history. And yet, as soon as I have any power within it, I'm going to flaunt that power to the maximum. Not that these guys were really reactionaries in the sense that they had a consistent ideology, but just that they, their impulses run in both directions. Mm. But while I was there with him, a few of the real reporters who were there called him out and sort of confronted him on camera. Or, you know, everything is on camera these days because someone just holds up a phone. And they wanted to nail him to the wall. They wanted to nail him on 
having a view that was inarguably beyond the pale so that they could prove that he didn't belong there. And they couldn't really do it because they didn't, well, because they just didn't know exactly who he was. And so they kept saying, well, you are a white nationalist. And he said, well, my boyfriend is Colombian, so I guess I'm not a good white nationalist, you know? And right. he was able to kind of win that round. Now, even though they weren't wrong in their intuition that he didn't belong there, he absolutely didn't belong there because he wasn't even pretending to be good at being a journalist. I mean, he, in some level, was pretending, but just in the barest, most superficial way. He, re he really was, mm. to the extent that what happens in that room is meaningful at all, which we can, you know, call into question, but to the extent that that kind of journalism is meaningful, he shouldn't have been there. But they couldn't really nail down why. And the reason I ended up being so scene dependent in the book is because I feel like I went round and round in my head about these theoretical concerns and reading into the history of questions of journalistic ethics and reading public opinion by Walter Lippmann and thinking through how democratic institutions do or don't survive and all of which was an interesting thought exercise. But then, you know, to just see a scene like that playing out in front of your eyes and seeing how even when something is obviously going awry, it's not always easy to name it accurately or to decisively prove it. And so to me, to get back to the substance of your question, that kind of seems like it, it suggests two different things to me that may or may not be at odds with each other. Like, on one hand, it seems to me like you want to be really minimalist and limit yourself to only lodging accusations that you absolutely know to be true because otherwise you know you could set yourself up for for humiliation on the other hand when you're dealing with a really slippery gifted troll they're not always going to give you the ammunition you need so if you limit yourself to only the barest assertions of fact you're just letting them win because you are allowing a liar to dictate the terms of the debate. So, of course, I don't advocate for making up accusations or for, you know, misinterpreting jokes as reality or vice versa. Obviously, in a vacuum, you want to get things right as often as you can. But the problem is they don't say what they mean. They don't give you the courtesy of, of, of telling you who they are. And so... I get why people try to, you know, why sometimes people overplay their hand because you, 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 you have to get outside of their setting of the terms. Well, many of them tell you who they are, that, or they tell themselves who they are when only their friends are, are listening. I mean, so if you if you listen long enough to many of these people, I think the mask, if they're ever wearing one, does come off sometimes. Yeah. So let, let's go to one of the kind of the harder cases, which are more by definition, more mainstream. And here, I think our intuitions might divide a little bit. And again, I mean, my intuitions here are now you know, sort of newly anchored to the experience of being on the other side of this. I mean, being targeted by people's poorly calibrated racist detectors. So like, take the cases of Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, right? So these are both people who I've been interviewed by. I've never met either of them in person, I don't think. But, you know, I've been interviewed by each of them a few times, you know, not recently. But you single them out essentially as as racist dog whistlers for things they've said recently. And I think, so Laura Ingram said 
you know, Democrats mostly want to replace those old white Yahoo conservatives with a new group who might be a little, a bit more amenable to big government. And that you read as a dog whistle. I believe I can read that more charitably just as a fairly factual statement. I mean, there's so many people on the far left who are banging on and on about white privilege and using whiteness and age and gender, you know, it's old white men being the filter against which they would make almost any political decision. I mean, they're, they're advertising this about themselves, and it seems you know, it to be charitable to Laura, and that's an impulse I don't often feel. She could have just been remarking on that and not dog-whistling to actual racists, much less expressing her own racism. Yeah. So I believe you that you can parse that in a way that you see it as not a dog whistle. I guess I don't see it that way, and I don't really see why you... I mean, I, I look, I get that it's always possible to read a quote literally as not racist in the sense that the person is not literally saying in the quote, I, a racist, believe that the races are that the white race is superior to the non-white races. Like in any quote where somebody's not saying those words, it's possible to read it as not racist. I haven't listened to every episode of your show, but I've heard some former episodes where I've heard you do this a few times with Trump, you know, saying, you know, yes, he told, you know, these women of color to go back to their countries, but I'm not sure I see that as a racist dog whistle. And I guess I guess I don't see why we we should ignore what's right in front of us and not take the obvious inference from it. There there is a a, a very well-known poisonous theory called the great replacement theory that we all know now because they were chanting about it in Charlottesville and so to the extent that people didn't know about it before that which I would argue it's probable that Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson did know about it before that but I can't prove it but we all know about it after that to then traffic in those words replacement and give it an explicitly race-related valence, and then to turn around and deny that you're trafficking in race baiting, I, it just it it just beggars belief. And I I don't, you know. Plus, you can put it together with a decades-long history of of doing similar things and of of supporting policies that have those effects. So I guess I just don't I don't see why we would try to contort ourselves into you know trying to. I, I get the point of being charitable to people, but this doesn't seem charitable. This seems implausible. I mean, I can give you an answer to that question. I mean, why bend over backwards to be charitable, even in the case when you're dealing with someone who you have other reason to believe might be racist? If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.